you if you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 4 is where we are at, are at this morning, page 835. I'm also going to read from Revelation chapter 7, page 871. So if you want to put your hands in that passage too, Revelation 7 and then, of course, Colossians 4. <clears throat> if you're wondering, this is the second to the last sermon in Colossians. So I hate, hate to see it go. It's been a very helpful and useful book. I think for all of us. Let's, <clears throat> let's read the word of the Lord. I will read and as you follow along. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proven a great comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, See to it, it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it, that you complete the work you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And now Revelation 7, verse 9 and, and 10. After this, I looked. There before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's, let's bow together as we seek the help that we need this morning. <clears throat> Gracious God and Father, we, we do bow to you now. We realize that while heaven and earth will, will certainly pass away, your word will never pass away. It is fixed in the heavens. And, and so we ask, Father, as we study the Bible now for your help, for the help of the Holy Spirit so that we might bring the affections of our hearts and the bents of our lives and the lines of thinking that mark each of us here this morning under the restraints and under the governing of your word, we, we are tempted to get this turned around. And it always disappoints us. It comes in big, but, but leaves us empty and, and far less than what you have provided for us. Jesus, you are king. Jesus, you are king. So let every creature rise and bring peculiar honors to our king. So in this time of our need, please help us. And Father, help us to believe and obey and not to be confused but rather be happy and thankful in each and it is for Jesus sake Jesus who hung on the cross for our sins sake 
that we ask these things now. Amen. Well, Paul began this letter to the Colossians with a greeting, a thanksgiving, and a prayer. And he gave us this powerful picture of who is Jesus. And he said things like, Jesus is all power, and Jesus is king, and he's head of the church. And he told them, this is what the gospel they said yes to does. He, he said, this is what God has done in Jesus for you, and this is what God has done in Jesus to you. And he said that it is unbreakable, it is unchangeable, it's not partial, but it is indispensable. And it comes to the Christian only by way of God's grace. So that our salvation, our justification, our sanctification is absolutely indispensable. And there's, there's nothing um, partial in these things. So that as we live our day-to-day lives, we may never rely on our works to whatever degrees they are, to set us and to keep us in the right with God. No, Paul has been saying again and again that it's only who Christ is and only what Christ has accomplished at the cross that sets us and keeps us in the right with God. And in fact, if you want to be real honest, in this letter, Paul really asked the, the Colossians to do a few things. Pray and pray in certain ways, which we talked about. Live in such a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ and evangelize. And that's essentially what the letter does to us or asked us to do by way of works and so we have to understand that so Paul is telling us how large this gospel is and how it can't be fiddled around with it can't be demoted or put aside in any way not even a speck because even if it's just a speck then you don't have the given gospel and so what Paul is doing here he's protecting the new Christians from all the false teachers that come to the Colossian Christians with all their religious flights of fancy and all their big promises play into our human weakness of either doubting God's promises or downgrading God's church or even play into our weakness of greed, thinking that somehow there is more that God hasn't given us and we need special people to help us to get it. And so Paul, after giving these, which we'll call them doctrinal imperatives, that's chapters 1 and 2, these are truths that are true about every Christian every day, no matter your race, no matter your face, your place, your status, no matter what. He then gives them Christian imperatives. It starts in chapter 3. This is who you are. Now be who you are. And that's the whole argument between 3 and 4. Now, can you imagine how encouraging this can be if you're someone like me and you struggle with indwelling sin every day? So as you think about these things, my status with God in Christ, absolutely perfect. My, my hope to live a holy life in Christ, absolutely promising. Will there be defeats? Unfortunately, yes. Will there be victories? Absolutely. And is Christ alone to be glorified in both? Unquestionably. This is the double imputation. This is that, what theologians call the w, double imputation of the cross. The Christian not only receives the righteousness of Christ, but the Christian also receives the forgiveness of Christ. Now, if you're thinking with me, what a great, what a great salvation. So that every time, every, every day on my best day or my worst day, I'm always relating to God only through the performance of Jesus and never on my own personal performance. And so again, as Paul gives these Christian imperatives in chapters 3 and 4, we're going to call them these we must. He isn't somehow kind of switching up on them. But what Paul is saying is essentially this. Our works for Christ, they can never save us. Our works for Christ simply reveal things about us. That our faith in Christ is genuine, that it is real, that it is alive. Subsequently, it was in the Apostle Paul, as we discovered last week, which we find one who was doing himself what he was instructing them to do. 
And we saw how the whole thing, specifically now, in the, in the Christian's must of public evangelism. And this is very fundamental in our day, I, I would suggest to you. That it, that it was in the Christian conduct and not in Christian controversy that Jesus declared to the outside world that he's alive and that he's the only way to be reconciled with God to others and to ourselves. Now, I say that because I think, I think we tend to think that somehow the controversial ones are the real courageous ones. But not always and not really. Because they could just be um, difficult people with a personal agenda who, who is uh, wanting Christ to tag along with them. And they're certainly not preaching Christ, but preaching themselves. Now, in much the same way as we consider the verses that are before us this morning that we read... We, we have to see, okay, the evangelism. The whole thing is, is, is conduct and not controversy. And this whole thing here in verses 7 and following is ordered for expansion. Okay? All these names and all those responsibilities that are attached on to those names, they're ordered for expansion. The expansion of Christ's name and the expansion of his church. That's why I read to you Revelation 7. That is the scene that we are headed to. A great number that no one can count. Okay? That's, out, that's the outworking of Psalm 2. Ask of me. This is the Father to the Son. Ask of me and I will give the nations your, as your inheritance. That's Psalm 96. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Really? Yes, really. Say to the people, the Lord reigns. That's, that's the fulfillment of Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Because as you begin to think about these names and consider the words that Paul puts by them, you're going to have to see that this, they're together. Why? Well, they're together in one great cause. They're all members of one great family, all to do the work of the one great Savior. So do you, I want you to feel and see this oneness, one lovely body for one outstanding cause, declaring only one Savior so that that Savior, that God may gather up his people who he will make Christians as we serve them and as we serve one another in love. Now, as you think about that, that is the local church, that is the global church. How beautiful she is. I mean, there's nothing bad or ugly about that, and that is what the Christian is working to. So, so if you have trouble with expansion, may God broaden your horizons, open your eyes, and help all of us here this morning to see this and to see how we may be a part of this. Because as we look at the Apostle Paul and his example here, this is an example that God wanted us to know. And we are to follow this example in varying degrees. And so as you consider these things, we, fought, we find in Paul deep satisfaction. These people stood by him. They, they helped him and that meant something to him. That grows something between people. Uh, I said to the first service that at the end of our business meeting this year, I, I remember it really well because I think it's the first time that it's happened to me, at least personally. All, all six of the elders, at the end of it, we all gave each other hugs. Five years ago, it was handshakes. Now it's hugs. Well, why is, it? Why is that? Well, we, we stood by each other and we gave ourselves to something bigger than ourselves to see the thing glorify Christ and to see the thing expanded. So the Apostle Paul was given an exact mission by Christ. Don't lose sight of that. And these people have proven indispensable to him because no one person is an island in ministry. So Paul knows there's prominence given to him as an apostle. He gets it. But, but loved ones understand that there's a heavy and oftentimes complicated burden for people like him. People in genuine pastoral ministry. 
And that does not downplay or render the ministry of other people somehow obsolete or insignificant. No, no, no. It's actually the reverse. Paul depends on them. Think, think for a moment. What good it would be for Paul if he wrote this letter and then he had no Tychicus who would be willing to deliver this letter. And so someone would say, oh, anybody could have done that. And to, person, you know, to the person who would say that, you would want to say to them gently, well, you don't understand ministry. In order for Paul to do what he was called to do, he in turn needed fellow colleagues in ministry. He needed people committed to the ministry of reconciliation. Because one day he knew that all Christians would stand before the throne of God. And they were going to get either a well done or not a well done. And so when Christ appears, 1 John 2.8, we may all be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. That's the scene that we're working for. Confident and unashamed before him at his coming. What's the alternative? Not confident, ashamed, still Christian. 1 Corinthians 3.10, 1 Timothy 4.9, parables of Jesus Christ. They all tell us this about that day. The blessedness of heaven will, will vary because of our current and future either responsibilities or irresponsibilities. To whom much is given, think about this, much is given, much is required. Time, energy, resources, much is given. Jesus said much is required. And so the farther along we go in this, whether we have willingness or unwillingness to serve Jesus Christ, at the judgment, it will be displayed. Nevertheless, we find Paul in Paul the capacity to delegate ministry to people. Why? I want you to listen carefully. Christian leadership, authentic, genuine Christian leadership, by its very de- definition, assumes delegation, assumes reproduction, assumes the gathering of others to be part of Christ's work. If that's not happen, happening, then something is lacking. And part of the reason is because Jesus has said something. He will build his church. And the genuine Christian leader believes this. And they become increasingly governed by that principle and pattern that Jesus left us to follow. So as we move uh, along to our first heading here, don't be the kind of leader in ministry that tries to do everything. Because delegation is needed. And don't be the kind of Christian leader that must control everything. In other words, nothing ever changes. As it is, as it was in the beginning, is now, and evermore shall be world without end. Amen. Don't be that way. And don't be the kind of Christian who says those seven words of any dying church or any dying ministry. We have never done it that way before. Any church or any ministry, you find this as the heartbeat. It's either dead or it's dying. And don't be the kind of Christian who's always looking back and never looking forward to the work, thereby being tempted to, if you would, throw a wet blanket over God's kingdom building project. Because here's the issue. Jesus is king. And the king is the issue. The king is the issue and the other people are the issue. We are important, yes. We're just not that important. And time is of a great issue. Time is short. This current world is just passing away. And and we would have King Jesus to set our paces. Not us, King Jesus. And when the church individual sees that they aren't really the issue, then with a Bible in our hand and a Savior in our heart, we can go, go, go. We advance, we mature, and we please God. And yes, there we say, we find enjoyment. We find great joy in this work. 
So I want you to understand right up front, in many ways, this talk this morning is much about the future of West Cohasset Chapel. So under our first heading, this idea of delegation, a certain kind of people, right? Because in the idea of delegation, we must ask ourselves the question, who are we to delegate to? James said, not many of you should be teachers. It's the same idea here. Who are we to delegate to? Now, Paul just doesn't give us everyone that is involved in his ministry, but he highlights some names, and those names are given to us, and we need to pay attention to them. And so there's our friend Tychicus, verse 7, and Onesimus, verse 9. And in these two men, we find three characteristics or three traits that we are able to see in delegation. Because, again, the very idea of delegating means that we are as a delegate representing the very person who has sent us. So Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. And in this, we see that to see Paul would be to see Christ. And to see these names would be to see that same Christ. Now that is fundamentally important. Paul's not kind of freewheeling it in a kind of spiritual religious sense. See Paul, see Christ. See us, see Christ. So, so here's an example. It's not a great one, but I think it'll help us along the way. Think about how people learn to be hairstylists. Okay? You go to the place where they train these people. And in, in Texas, we called it a four-buck chuck. So you chuck yourself in the chair. You pay four bucks, and they take off some of your hair. Okay? It's quite good if you're a student in seminary and you needed a four-buck chuck. Four bucks was easy. Okay, so you go there first, and you see in the chair, um, or you're in the chair, and it's the teacher who's mostly cutting, and it's the student who's mostly watching and learning. Then you go back a few weeks later, because your hair used to grow a lot quicker than it did back then. <laughs> but anyway, it's the student and it's the teacher that are both cutting and both are watching. And the student is continuing to learn. And then you go back and it's only the student that is cutting and the teacher who is watching. And then you go back one day with your $4 in your hand and it's only the student. What happened? Their responsibility has been delegated to them. Delegation. Someone alongside you watching and learning from you. A responsibility has been passed on. The ability to advance the whole thing has been provided. Now, now we understand that works terrific in business or even education. But often in the church of Christ, we leave people kind of high and dry. You know, you get saved and then off you go. But we can't do this. We, we need classes to help people with their spiritual giftedness. By the way, in a few weeks, there'll be such a class being offered to you at the 9 o'clock Bible hour. We need help uh, uh, to teach people how to exercise their gifts. We need leaders and we need those further along in the faith to come alongside people and show them the way. That was Onesimus. Remember, he was a runaway slave. He was a thief at first. And then Paul poured Jesus Christ to him. Paul gave him the gospel. Paul calls him his son. Now he is someone Paul depends on in the work. Now think about that for a moment. You have this former runaway slave, a thief. And now he's a colleague of the apostle Paul. Well, that's terrific. That's a Christian. So be honest. Some of us here have never really done this. If you do ministry, you just do it. And you've never really planned ahead and thought and prayed about the future and people in any meaningful way. Part of it might be because we think there's, any, you know, there's not enough people along to come alongside us. Part of it might be because we think it's our ministry and it actually belongs to Christ because we are stewards. We not, we're not owners. We don't own anything. Which that's our thought process. Jesus, what do you want? What have you said? Because we're going to give an account to you one day for it. 
So we want to do God's work, God's way, so we might have God's approval at the judgment day. And part of it might be because we've never been instructed to this end. Whatever it might be, let's just move on and let's get it right. Paul was an apostle, delegated by Christ to be the apostle to the whole Gentile world. Think about that. One man. Does that not call for delegation? Yes, it does. We have the same call to every local person in this community and globally. Okay, okay then, because of this, we have to pay attention to this. A certain kind of person in delegation. And I want you to see as you look at verses 7, 8, and 9, that the stress is on the character of the person and not their abilities. Okay? Character, not their abilities. What Paul commends here is character. Because God is concerned about what we are before he's concerned about what we do. You get this in our head. It is in the ordinary, not in the extraordinary, that God is pleased to move. There's only one extraordinary person in the whole of the Bible. And it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is king. So God doesn't look for talent. He doesn't look for stand-outers. I mean, he's looking for bow-downers. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one who I esteem. One who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. Why, God? Why do you want it to be that way? Well, my own personal experience tells me that oftentimes those with talent, those with many bright ideas, they pass over God's given plan all too quickly. And they've got a better way. And they've got their own pace. You see, we dare not delegate to those who don't have a mighty reverence for the word of God. We dare not delegate to those who have set themselves up as an authority over the word of God. Those who are constantly questioning everything about what God has said. And that's why we go back to character. Can they do what is written? Just like Jesus Christ did what he was told. I read through John's gospel this week over and over again. I always do what my father tells me to do. Whatever my father says, I'm doing. Whatever the father says, I'm doing. It's beautiful. It's simple. That's why character is the key and not so much talent. So what kind of person then should we as leaders be glad to delegate delegate to? Verse 7, a dear, our beloved person. That's what Paul says about Tychicus. The the Greek word is agabatos. It means warmth. This is like a good dad or a good mom thinking good thoughts about their children. And, And when Paul says the name Tychicus... His heart leaps. This is great, isn't it? Your heart leaps. She's here. Your wife's here. It's beautiful. So in our home, I know it's the same in yours. We give hugs to each other. And you kind of know when it's a good hug. And it's, a, you know, it's just a hug. And I've noticed things about the good hugs. Typically, when we have good hugs, it's either because we've all worked together, we've celebrated together, we've all suffered together, or Jesus has been amazingly merciful and everyone understands us together and something has happened. So there's a warmth conveyed there. There is a belovedness uh, that, that has to grow, that takes time to grow, that you couldn't give me a trillion dollars for. Right? We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will guard each one's dignity and, and save each one's pride. Togetherness builds belovedness. To whom may leaders delegate responsibility to? Well, dear beloved brothers and dear beloved sisters. Where there's a oneness there. And they know this oneness was one for them at Calvary. And it moves the heart. Secondly then, delegates would be people who are faithful ministers. 
That's the word that is translated diakonos or deacon. Now, Paul's not, again, he's not talking about status here. Tychicus is not necessarily a deacon. This is function. He was a servant. He was a faithful servant, just like Onesimus. So, so whatever the task was, you knew that Tychicus was not going to be a Humpty Grumpty. Right? He wasn't going to grumble all the time. You knew that he wasn't going to constantly question everything that was assigned to him. You knew that if he said 10 o'clock on Tuesday, it would be 10 o'clock on Tuesday. And if it wasn't 10 o'clock on Tuesday, because he was a faithful brother, something must have happened. So Tychicus was timely. That's implied in the word faithfulness. Respecting the time of others, showing up on time. No constant tardiness. No constant excuses. Tychicus is sent, verse 8. Now think about this. He's, he's an associate of Paul. So he's going to represent Paul before the Colossian Christians. Remember, they've never seen Paul. They only know Paul by, by script and by personality or how people convey him. So you have to have someone represent you. What kind of person would you choose to represent you? A beloved, faithful servant? I would. So would Paul. Thirdly, a servant in the Lord or a bondservant of Christ. So, so not only is he faithful, he is bound to Jesus Christ. Son doulos, a captive of Christ. In other words, he's a Jesus man. He's enslaved to Jesus and, and not in some kind of goofy or weird or bombastic way. Right? Not in some way where it's just, you're just saying, don't. Just stop. But in a sensible way. Remember, it's conduct here. Conduct is a byproduct that opens a door for us. Christ is the issue, not us. And so, he is a Jesus man in the best of ways. And so, he's going to travel. And in the ancient world, travel was dangerous and it was difficult. He, he would be far gone for a far long time to those nearest to him for a while, but he was a bondservant of Jesus. It was okay. It was Jesus. It was okay. Jesus is the foundation of my life. It's okay. So what do we learn? Well, we learn that these character traits, which have nothing to do with talent or outstanding abilities, have much to do with integrity and disposition and willingness and submission. So we look for a beloved. That's that they're not hard to be around. And we look for someone faithful. You don't need to chase her or him around to see if their work is always completed or timely as well. And we look for people who are servants of Christ. You see those three words in the Lord, the last three words of verse 7 in your Bibles? That, that's the idea that everything that he said about Tychicus is that it revolves around Christ. Is he a Christian? Yes. Is he in the body? Yes. Is he involved? Yes. Is he committed to Christ and committed to God's people and committed to the outsider? Yes, that is Tychicus. So to Tychicus, the church, that's tough to say a whole lot, isn't it, Tychicus? But anyway, Tychicus to the church, the church isn't a buffet to him. And he wouldn't come into the church and pick and choose what he liked, only that would concern him. No, he's there because he knows that in God's people and in the outsider and in, in the whole expression, there is the body of Jesus Christ. Now, if we don't delegate to these kinds of people in service, I'm going to suggest to you two things are inevitable. Number one, the leader will eventually end up saying, if I want the job done, I must do it myself. And then advancement and maturity is halted. In fact, even just saying that phrase, it just makes me feel pitiful. Advancement and maturity is halted. Second, if we don't have these kinds of people in, in ministry, we will have self-willed people who bow to their own minds and not the mind of Christ. 
Why do people serve Jesus Christ? Generally speaking, why do people serve Jesus Christ? I'll give you two reasons. One, they love Jesus. Or two, they love to be in charge. And we must hold to the former. And we must fight like the Dickens against the latter. Okay, our first heading, a certain kind of person, beloved, faithful, sold out to Jesus Christ. Secondly, a certain kind of pattern. Now, the pattern is something that is at the very heartbeat of Christian ministry. And, and again, if we don't understand the mission of Christ and what he has given and the authority that he has over that, this, then all of a sudden we'll create our own mission. So again, for example, the Anglican Church, make poverty history. That's their big mission. It's, it's a good mission, but it's not the mission. Popular Christianity, you know, self-fulfillment. That's the only thing. Don't do anything unless it pleases you. Self, 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 self. That's essentially the message of popular Christianity. Every day of Friday, you can be terrific. Da, 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 da. Hmm. That's not what's happening here. Here, everyone on this list, except one, and we'll get to that person in a minute, they understand the one given mission. And they're all working together to see that one mission accomplished. Listen to Alexander McLaren. This is one of our comment, my commentaries I use. Here are men and women of different races. The names that are listed here come from three different territories, Asia Minor, Jewish, and Greek territories. Some unknown to each other by face, clasping hands across the seas and feeling that aversion of nationality, language, conflicting interests, having disappeared in the unity of the faith. These greetings are a most striking testimony to the reality and strength of the new bond that knit Christian souls together. Now as you think about that idea, and that's just a great paragraph, every one of their backgrounds probably differ greatly. But they've given themselves to the same person. And they've given themselves to the same work. And it's all channeled through the authority of the Apostle Paul. Who got his authority through Jesus Christ. So I want you to see that. They're okay with, if you would, being second. Even though they're really first along with Paul. You get it? So, he uses many different phrases. And he makes implied statements to that same name. Look at your Bibles. Verse 7. A servant of the Lord. Which Lord? The, the Lord Jesus Christ. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus. In other words, we're in the same boat together. I am in prison for the sake of the Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Verse 10b, Mark and Jesus, who's called justice. Verse 11, Jews who are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. Verse 12, Epaphras, a servant of Christ. Verse 15, Nympha, who hosted a church gathering. The church, the body of Christ. Now you track with me, Christ, 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 Christ. And maybe this is so basic that you find it almost unnecessary to mention, but, but humor me a bit. They're all serving Christ, Christ's way. And they're all serving His church, Christ's way. In other words, that is the rally point, And He is the issue. So as you think about this, and you take this down to a local gathering, a local body, we delegate to those who share the vision. That they understand the pulse of ministry who know and believe in completely hows and the whats and where we are going in ministry. Because as you look at these people, you do not get the impression that these people are difficult, that they're bossy, or they're interrogative. But they're verse 11. They prove a great comfort to Paul. They, verse 13, they work hard. And verse 10, they are willing to make incredible sacrifices such as Aristarchus. Now why do I stop and mention him? Well, this is what I want you to know. He needs to be known. He was a Greek, he had a Greek name, but he was actually a Jewish believer. He was with Paul in Ephesus. He became Paul's colleague. <clears throat> Acts 19.29, he was seized by a rioting mob because the people knew that he was one of Paul's companions. And so Paul calls him here, my fellow prisoner. 
And that phrase means either two things. Either one, he was an actual prisoner with Paul because he volunteered himself to Christian service. Or two, and by the way, this is what most biblical scholars think, he volunteered himself to take on Paul's lifestyle and essentially volunteered himself to be Paul's helper in prison. And again, that's what most scholars think. It's the language of the Greek that lends them to say that. So this is what you have. You have a person who cared for Paul in prison so that Paul could continue his work in prison. Aristarchus essentially was Paul's personal prison assistant. How would you like that title? What do you do now, son? Well, I'm, I, I am the personal prison assistant of Paul. I mean, can't you hear your dad? You know, your dad's like, don't you waste your life. Are you kidding me? You're gonna do, are you kidding me you're going to do that? Now, I want you to think for a moment. Beyond the fact this is wonderfully sacrificial, ask yourself this question. Think, 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 think. Who does that remind you of? Someone to lay aside themselves for the good of others. I'll give you all the money in my pocket if you're, if you're thinking of Jesus Christ. Right? Someone who volunteers, takes on the very nature of another, a prisoner, a slave for their good, and he volunteers himself to submit to something he need not to so that someone else could gain by their loss. This is Philippians 2, Philip's translation. Think of yourself the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself. They had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, becoming human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death of that, a crucifixion. Okay, so, so that's Jesus. What about Aristarchus? When the time came, he set aside his freedom and took on the status of a prisoner. He became a prisoner. He stayed a prisoner. He lived for Christ, for Paul. He was selfless. He had given himself to someone else. Well, that's something. That's something. That's grace. That's God's grace in Jesus. A certain kind of person, beloved, faithful, sold out to Christ. A certain kind of pattern, Jesus' pattern, the apostle pattern, our, our Aristarchus' pattern. Our final point here, a third and final part, a certain kind of truth to remember. And actually, there are two things we must remember as we enter into these things. There may be disappointment and sorrow in ministry that has to do with one or some of the people we serve. There may be disappointment and sorrow in ministry that has to do with one or some of the people we serve. Jesus had his Judas and Paul had his Demas. That's verse 14. And Demas' name is mentioned twice in the New Testament. Once here and it's good. And the second time later on in the story, you read this, 2 Timothy 4. For Demas, same guy here, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has went to Thessalonica. So Demas, who, who, who was one time engaged in the work, but because he loved this present age, because he loved the world, he deserted Paul. So there was no persevering until the end, was there, in Demas. And, and the word that Paul chooses to use in 2 Timothy 4 is a hard word. And actually, it's a word that injectures like heart feeling. Demas was a good friend of Paul. 
and, and his act was a painful act. It's breaking Paul's heart. So, so there isn't any sense of jealousy here. You know, he's kicking back in warm Thessalonica, and here I am in cold, wet Roman prison. It's not that. It's sadness of heart because Paul knows what Demas has left. He's left the work. Demas thinks that he somehow has traded up. Paul's like, no, no, you've actually traded down. Servants of Christ, hold on to that truth until the very, very end. Demas handed himself over to the pleasures of this world. What are the pleasures of this world? Well, 1 John 2 gives us this idea, and it's only the pleasures and the appeals of skin and touch and feel and senses and to status and to comfort. Again, J.B. Phillips, 1 John 2, for the whole world system, based as it is on man's primitive desires, their greedy ambitions and the glamour of all they think splendid is derived from the father is not derived from the father at all, but from the world itself. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. Okay, there may be disappointment and sorrow in ministry. It has to do with one or some of the people we serve. I'm thinking of Chuck Swindoll, John MacArthur, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper, all who have had colleagues beside them, elders, pastors, co-pastors, who, who, were le- who left the ministry, either by their own fault or some bad incident that they were involved in. Second, there's always going to be a great need for laborers in the work of Jesus Christ. Always a great need for the workers of Christ in His church. I'm sure you've heard this before. Howard Hendricks said a long time ago, the church of Jesus Christ is like a professional football game. You have 22 people on the field badly in need of rest, and you have 60,000 people in the stands badly in need of exercise, okay? So, so if you're in the stands, please listen. Or if you're on the field and you're not into Jesus' mission, you're just running around the field and you're a bloody nuisance to all of us. Or if you're a referee and you have your yellow flag and you're always throwing the flag on every play, then please, Christian, remember this and consider this because this is an appeal to your conscience. The very gifts that Jesus Christ has apportioned to us as Christians at our conversion for His service, they were won by Him by His suffering and death on the cross. Think of this. This is Ephesians 4. You can read this at home later. The gospel was in the mind of God before there was time or space or anything. And part of the gospel plan was that the Son would die. And when the Son rose again, that son would capture the enemies of the cross and then give his people his victory, i.e. the gifts of service. So, so everything was converged together at the cross and in Jesus' mighty resurrection and ascension so that every gift we have is a gift won for us by blood. And you're sensible people. Just, just think this out. Are you just going to sit on that? Are you just going to sit on that? I had this horrible habit the first couple of years of marriage. Whenever I would buy myself something new, like a new pair of shoes or a new pair of pants, it's this awful thing. I can't believe I'm telling you this. I would just look at it for months. I wouldn't wear them. I would just look at them. My wife's like going, holy cow, is this what I said yes to? Would you just put the thing on and wear it? I mean, isn't that silly to look at new stuff and just let it sit there and just look and look and look? Put it on. Use it. Jesus Christ gave gifts to men and women. Those gifts were won by his suffering and death at Calvary. So as you hear all these things, is this the echo of your heart? 
This appeal to your conscience. Our time is done. Many of you serve Jesus Christ here. And I thank God for you. Every day I try to thank God for you. To the rest of us, there's, there's opportunities, isn't there? There's many opportunities. Next Sunday, February the 2nd, there's going to be tables lined up all over the place. Opportunities for ministry. Think. Consider. Decide. Finally, no one who ever lived on this planet was more servant and more productive than Jesus Christ. So my prayer today for all of us, beginning with myself, is may God give us the grace we need to follow Jesus Christ, His way. And we said this in our prayer, let every creature rise and bring peculiar honors to our King. One of the best ways we can do that in service in His name for His glory. Let's bow together. I sure thank you for your attention this morning. Our God and Father, we would ask that you would grant us the the grace to serve Christ and his church in such a way that continually, rightly pleases you. And we would pray that we would be able to do this until our end or to your return. It's right, as the catechism question said this morning, it's it's right that we who were created by you and are sustained by you should live for your glory. Help us to understand what this means in the days you have given us. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.